Huh? Right. That's the whole point is, is that we keep saying no self, no self, anatta. But that was not the right translation of that word. And that's why we are so confused about it. That in fact, the word self in English has many, many different uses in many different translations. Like an automobile means self-moving, mobile, auto. Okay. Now, auto is very close to the word atmos. In the Greek, there is the word atom. But we have found, in fact, uh, my friend from Estonia, uh, who does this kind of research, says that it's not the Greek word atom. Because the word atom means to be not splittable. Atom. You can't cut it. But that's not the word from that Greek um, that that's in the Pali. The word is um, the word that we actually can get from the Greek or the Greek similarity would be atmos. A-T-M-O rather than A-T-O-M. Atmos is giving the word atmosphere. We already have that that word in English language. Okay, what what does the word atmos mean in the sense of the sphere that covers the earth? Now, from outer space, they say that oh, when you really look at the uh, the, the planet Earth from a distance uh, sufficient enough, you can see that the atmosphere is actually very very thin compared to the size of the Earth. It's only like a hundred miles or less. The whole atmosphere of the Earth is less than a hundred miles thick. Uh, and gets really, really thin in a hurry after about 50 miles. So the second 50 miles is really, really thin. In fact, humans can't even breathe above 14 or 15,000 feet, which is only uh, one or two, about three or four miles. So that and compared to that with the, the planet Earth, 8,000 miles across, and you can only then have two or three miles of an atmosphere. It's very, very thin. So that atmos is the word that we use. Um, the example would be um, Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma is that word, great soul. Mahaata. Right. So the word in uh, Pali, anatta, does not mean no self, it means no soul. And as I was saying before, that can freak out a Christian trying to translate the Pali, trying to make sense out of it. And so he changed the word from no soul to no self. Now, let's understand that correctly in the sense that uh, the reason why we can use self and no self as opposed to soul and no soul, is because we can make a definite distinction. There is either a soul or not a soul. In other words, um, the, uh, uh, the, the, the conversation, the argument between Christians and atheists is the wrong argument. Is there a God? Because the existence of a God whether it does exist or not, is irrelevant if there is no soul by which the God can operate. In other words, if I've got no soul, then the God is irrelevant. 
But if I do have a soul, then after I die, so the story goes, I'm, that soul is going to be like a football that gets kicked around pretty much. Maybe sure. kicked right into hell. <laughs> sure. Go ahead. So, so a comment. So, you know, I've been reading a lot of Zen the last week or two. And um, there was one American Zen master's book I was reading. And one of the comments he made was that the great psychological insight of the Buddha, upon which a lot of Buddhism rests, is that the self doesn't actually exist. And once you open yourself up to that, you know, and you see all things interconnected and there is no solid, unchanging, permanent self, um, that brings a great source of relief and enjoyment. And, and that... That's the whole point. That's it. That's the whole point in the self, in the sense of solid, permanent, unchanging, okay, to where the selfishness can arise and pass away. It's temporary. Self is a temporary thing that does arise and pass away, but a soul is something that is solid, unique that has to exist for a long time. So the, the uh, issue about the atheist and the Christian, so having that talk about is there a God or does God exist or not, it's the wrong question. And it, and it leaves them with the fact that atheists and Christianity are almost identical. There's a very, very tiny little difference between atheism and Christianity, okay? The only distinction is, is that upon the breakup of the body, the existing being is annihilated for the uh, for the uh, atheist. And upon the breakup of the body, the existing being is not annihilated for the Christians. That's the only difference between an atheist and a Christian. There's actually a That's great line by the philosopher Slavoj Žižek, and he said, Christianity is actually a form of atheism. And then he goes on to explain that when Christ was on the cross and said, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That was the permission that Jesus actually gave all the Christians permission to be atheist with that one line. And so therefore, Christianity is like kind of atheism light. And, and because of that okay. particular line. There's, one, there's, one you, there's something quite interesting about that. Yeah. What did Jesus actually say in the Hebrew is not what the Christians hear in English. Because mm-hmm. in English, they have this uh, bad German translation of Jehovah that comes back to Yahweh, which is actually an unpronounceable word that has to do with a uh, the later God, the fire God, the burning bush, the... Uh, um, the genocidal maniac. The volcano. Is Yahweh. The volcano god, right. Moses and Monotheism by Freud. Pardon? <laughs> Moses and Monotheism by Freud breaks this down. Now there's two, two gods. <laughs> there's exactly. The sun god and the volcano god. And it's a great it's a great book. But anyway, go ahead. But anyway, yes. But in the Bible, there are actually different words for God. And there is an older God. Eli, the word that uh, in the um, uh, Arabic becomes Allah, Eli, 
And that was the word that Jesus used. I, I used to know the, the whole uh, Hebrew translation, but it's Eli, Eli. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So this is the, the Eli is actually the merciful God. Hmm. It's the God of compassion. It's the God that Jesus actually taught as opposed to the Yahweh, the God of war. Right. You could actually, have you heard of the book of uh, men are from Mars and women are from Venus? I have, yes. Exactly, no, it's the God of war and the God of compassion. Yeah, Freud goes right into that in that book, Moses and Monotheism. Um, and he, have you read it? Because this sounds I right. haven't, but it's, it's just reality. He's just writing it down and I'm talking about it. But other than that, yes. But in our society, men have been pushed into being the God of war, the, uh, the, um, uh, the Yahweh. And women are pushed into being feminine and being in the God of, um, now, uh, of Elah, except that these gods are not really gods. They are archetypes. They're ideals. They're the, they're the end of the direction. When you point that way, the very end of where that is pointed is Yahweh. And when we're pointing in this direction, the very end of it is Elah. And so when Jesus says, Eli, Eli, my God, my God, he's not talking about the God that everybody else is talking about. There's a great uh, book by Carl Jung called um, Answer to Job. And it's about how the very last book in the Old Testament is the book of Job, where God... The very first, depending uh, upon whether you're, you know, <laughs> if you're looking at a book or looking at history. But it looks like yeah. the jokes have been the very first literature done. It's the yeah, oldest. But, but anyway, the way it's set up, it's arranged as it's the last book, right? And mm -hmm. Carl Jung says that God is such an asshole in that book by totally torturing this guy Job that that text necessitated Christianity, where God comes in as, as a merciful father. And he, he says that, Carl Jung says, that the Old and New Testament can be read as the evolution of the consciousness of God from being a genocidal maniac to a merciful father. And it's, it's in that, that still a cycle. He starts off as a merciful God, that's the older, and then he becomes a genocidal maniac for about 3,000 years. <laughs> and then he reverts back to in the uh, beginning of Christianity to be a merciful God, but the merciful part didn't stick. Not past the New Testament, but within but the... It's still in that cycle that God has these two um, sides of the coin, or there's that cycle. Just, justice versus mercy. Justice versus mercy. Over and over again, and the teaching of the Buddha is look at that cycle and drop the cycle. Right. So then having to choose, are you going to be merciful or are you going to be uh, uh, judgmental? Because justice matters, so they say. Sure. And so sure. learning how to drop that cycle, we need to see both sides of it. That's what Jung 
and um, uh, these philosophers were actually trying to point at was that this stuff is cyclic and it's back and forth, up and down, et cetera, like that. Um, so getting back to the point is that the idea of a soul means that the cycle must go on. And that uh, anatta means that no, we can change it. We can make a change here. It does not have to just roll on in that old way of up and down, back and forth, compassion, uh, justice. I, I win, I lose. Up, down, back, forth, you know, over and over and over again. And, and the whole point of the teaching of the Buddha is to come out of that cycle through wisdom. Sure. And to tie this back to the self-effacement, I was I was thinking a moment ago about how I think confidence is perhaps a better word than pride, right? Uh, because confidence it does not necessarily show itself directly and someone can be humble yet confident at the same time um, at least as i see it you could be generous and kind and not self-aggrandizing the way a pride proud person might be but Precisely. Still okay confident. well we let's talk about uh the twin combination words of power and strength that a person who has strength has power. Okay. Now, the whole point about the strength and the power is, is that when the power is shaky, when the strength needs to be tested to find out if it's good, it is power. Hmm. But real power, the wrong, the one who you've heard this, the phrase, the strong, silent type. Yes. Strength. When it's really strong, has no enemies, and therefore there's nothing to be afraid of, and therefore <laughs> it doesn't have to exert any power. Yeah, I think Ronald Reagan said something like that: "Peace through strength." I think that mm -hmm. was in the whole strength. idea: you just build up the military, and then you never have to use it. Right, because you're strong enough to not have to get into it that power is when you want to get into it and you want the strength to be able to win. But real strength has the quality of not wanting to get involved with it. So this is the whole point when we were talking about before of uh, competition leads to the result of either pride or humility. But real strength doesn't bother to play the game, to do the competition, because the strength already has the wisdom that of who the winners are. Everybody's a winner. Sure. So that's the, uh, the possibility of looking at how do we come out of our competition? We come out of our competition by recognizing, oh, right now, if I get into competition with this person, I'm going to win. I'm going to set it up that way to win. Now can I set it up also for them to win? Then it's not a competition anymore. Sure. Friendship. Sure. But um, 
that in fact, here's here's an example of that. You've no doubt seen some of the talks that I've had with Dan Ingram on um, with uh, Guru Viking. And some yeah. of the people who comment, comment from the position of, I'm his man, and therefore the other guy uh, interrupts or uh, picks his nose or, you know, he's a terrible person. Why does uh, uh, he have to put up with that guy? And right. yet the way that, uh, that Dan Ingram and I are, we're different people, but we're friends with each other. Right. He knows how to be friends, and I know how to be friends, and that's how we do it, and we can have a beautiful conversation that other people want a winner and a loser. Right. <laughs> and the winners and losers are in the minds of the audience, not of the ones who are on stage. In fact, the same thing can happen, let us say, in um, any kind of performance. Let us say um, a play or a movie of a knife fight. In the play, both of them are actors, and they're just going through the motions. Right. It's the audience that makes it real in the mind of each individual audience member. They want this guy to win or that guy to win, but if you understand how movies work, you can understand that you already know who's going to win. Right. <laughs> the movie was done last year. The movie was decided, you know, uh, who was going to win was decided before the movie was actually shot. The film wasn't done. It was in the script. Before it was in the, it was in the mind of the guy who was going to write the script. So the decision about who won or lost in that, uh, that knife fight in the movie was done a long ago. And yet people watch the movie and they get all excited because they want winners and losers. Right. That can happen also in Dhamma conversations to where the two guys that are having the Dhamma conversation, there's no knives out. <laughs> <laughs> They're not after each other. They're not trying to one-up and shift. They're both just enjoying it. But the audience will get very, very uptight about winners and losers. Right. And so um, in, in that regard, it may not be as valuable an idea of, uh, to go, uh, let us say, with, with Steve uh, James and go have a dual interview with everybody that he's had an interview with. Because the people who follow, let us say, Mr. X, who is really highly magically oriented, Damarato have a conversation. We might find some common ground, but the people who really want to have my magic will wind up putting winners and losers in that conversation. Right. Th and this, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> this is partly why I avoid groups. Is I don't like competition. I just, you know, it just adds a little bit of uh, stress, and I don't like it. And so I just exit precisely. Group. That's what Sangha really is all about, is when we can work together and everybody winds up being a winner. That's what Sangha is all about. There's no competition in Sangha. Right. There's no competition in real friendship. Right. And even if the two friends are playing a game, playing a card game, they'll let each other win. Right. It's much more of uh, an issue of having fun together rather than winners and losers. But if you take those that same deck of cards down the, uh, the street 
along with the pocket of cash. Now it's called gambling, and there really is winners and losers there. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. You know, one thing I notice is men and women compete differently, uh, generally speaking. So That's men, why the women always win is because they know how to compete both ways. <laughs> the men, they don't know how to compete. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I notice uh, men like to compete um, in terms of, well, physical strength is the most obvious, but also intelligence. You know, men like to try and outdo each other and show I'm smarter than you, I'm this, I'm that, right? And I usually disengage as soon as I, I see that happening, um, partly because I feel I'm smarter than them for the fact that they're just. <laughs> That's the whole point. Yeah, why should we bother to compete with those guys? We're already going to win that one. <laughs> you got it. You understand what I'm talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Why bother competing with those dudes? They're the ones who want winners and losers. <laughs> right, which means they're the dumb ones, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, women like to compete in terms of appearance, in terms of the attention they're getting. Um, and And I noticed kind of... I, emotionally, almost, it, it seems to me like uh, who's getting the most nurturing in this moment, you know, and I notice, you know, women that belong to families of women, um, like, say, my mom is an example of this, right? Um, if one, she had five sisters she grew up with. So so if so, if one sister gets more attention than the others, it create could it would create a competition among the sisters. This doesn't happen anymore mm -hmm. because they're too old and mature for it. But when I was young, you know, and they were all much younger, I remember this competition. <laughs> you know, um, and so I think it is interesting how men and women compete differently. And I think the women well, it's not interesting that women and men are different in this competition. The interesting part is how society teaches that hmm. that, um, that you could say that women can't compete with men for strength in general and then you go and say well wait a minute uh, any woman can go to martial arts they can learn to box they can learn to do this that and the other thing and then they can tear the head off of any man <laughs> it depends upon the training you know but who gets then the training for fighting is men get the training for fighting if trained women to do all the warfare and you taught the men to uh, to nurse babies but in fact that's the whole point of mothering mothering has to do with nurturing so when they compete they compete with what they're good at right but do you think that's partly biological you know don't you think uh, it's partly biological but it is heavily reinforced with our society Sure. Right. Like there's the fact of pregnancy, you know, which is a scientific fact, um, mm -hmm. you know, but when that creates a whole biological connection between the mother and the child. But then everything that happens after the pregnancy is a lot of it is socially constructed, except for the breastfeeding. Right. Well, what breastfeeding? the woman feeding the baby from the breast like you know there's a whole like chemical of all of the babies that you walk around with those adults how many of them were actually breastfed 
I have no idea, but I would imagine some portion. And in today's society, I think breastfeeding got really, really rare in the 1960s and almost disappeared by the 1970s. Hmm. So then, in our society, had, and a lot of that had to do with modesty. That a woman just couldn't, when it's time to feed and she's out in public, she just can't rip that blouse off and give the kid a tit. You can't do it in our society. We've, we've had what um, um, Victorian times. <laughs> That's but funny. Yeah. Now breastfeeding is taboo, especially in public. And Nestle is jotting on the spot to make a hundred million dollars off of. Uh, you see, if you ever give a baby milk one time, it's going downhill where he's being bottle fed more and more and more. If you keep a baby on the tit, then he will not get so much food. Hmm. Not so convenient. Hmm. It's like that. Mom can't go out into public because she's going to have to feed the babe when he cries. All right. So the whole thing is to going away from breastfeeding. And once we've gotten away from breastfeeding, then the distinction of who's got tits is less and less meaningful. In fact, tits have become sexual objects. For dogs, tits aren't sexual. Most big female um, primates, you can't tell the difference between what's a male and what's a female if the photo is from the chest up. Hmm. It's only in humans where the humans with their eyes, because we're so visually oriented, have begun to sexualize tits. And that's a society thing. That in fact, one example would be in India, in the 14s and 1500s, women wore saris. And that's all they wore. When the Brits came, they didn't like the fact that tits were all over the place. <laughs> but they, you know, they make a skirt out of it, and then they'll throw it over a shoulder, and one of the other tits is likely to get exposed. It was the British who made the uh, Indian women wear halter bras. Hmm. Which is that little, you know, the midriff that starts here. It's a little shirt that's cut off right below the tit level. Yeah. The British, the Indians wear those things, and now it's part and parcel of Indian culture. Every woman who wears a sari also wears a little halter bra. Hmm. hundred years ago, you do that. Why? It was the British who sexualized tits. Hmm. You know, it's funny. In, in Colombia, I've seen it several times. Uh, woman breastfeeding in public. It's uh, it's not that big of a deal here. Um, I even saw it in traffic one time. We were in traffic and there was a woman with the baby just on the side of the road and she was breastfeeding just sit right there in the middle of, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, it's uh, they don't, as far as that's concerned, um, I'd say Colombia is fairly modest in a lot of ways. It's a modest society, conservative society in many ways. Uh, but, but it's not it modest that, in the way of overly sexualizing breastfeeding. Right. Overly sexualizing tits. Right. That in fact, um, look at uh, possibly the most ridiculous point would be breast implantations, breast surgery. Not because of cancer, 
but because in the mind of the woman and possibly of the doctor, that they think that the woman will look more sexually attractive if she's carrying around uh, two pounds of silicon on her chest. It's actually funny. So that is fairly common in Colombia, plastic surgery. Like it's it's pretty common. Um, but the region actually there's a distinction. So if you're from Bogota, the capital, um, you will only get smaller implants. I, I heard because if it's too big, it's considered trashy. But if you're in the south in Medellin, they have they get large implants and it's considered totally normal. That's what I, I heard. And I thought that was quite funny. Well, that's another point that I'm making. The proof is, is that a lot of stuff that we think has to do with gender may have a seed of it. But the reality is, is that it's culture. Hmm. And you just showed that. Right there. It's the culture of Bogota versus the culture of the other city that I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And in uh, India, 400 years ago, breasts were not sexualized. But in fact, there's a lot of art yep. in the old days, a lot of uh, carved art. I mean, India had very, very high civilization with a lot of carvings. Ficharato uh, is one of the uh, best examples. And you see tits all over the place in those carvings. They didn't mean anything then. But now, in Western society especially, tits are highly sexualized. So, um, going back to our original point about um, the teaching of anatta, is, is that um, that that idea of, oh, I am who I am, and I need to fix the body so that I will be better, to in fact, the, the reality is, is that any of that kind of uh, sexually enhanced plastic surgery or whatever doesn't help anything. A clear example of uh, that would be um, Michael Jackson. Oh, yeah, that's a sad story. Huge amounts of money, getting his face whiter. Um, in, in fact, the nose that he had wound up with, because, you know, uh, in the African culture, uh, big nose and big lips are part of the, um, uh, the DNA. And so here he has all of this. Uh, they almost removed his nose completely. The only wow. thing they was the tip, and they just cut off all, uh, I don't know how many nose surgeries that the poor dude had, but he had them because of racism. Hmm. That it was all racially motivated, that he wanted to get away from the stereotypes that were um, uh, done. But the point is, is that the real issue of who I am has nothing to do with the body. The real issue of who I am uh, is not the feelings. It's not the intellectual capabilities. The real issue of who I am is, can I change? The woman who has the big imprint says, I can't change, but maybe the doctor will do it for me. <laughs> sure. I up my own breast, but I can get a doctor to pop some silicone in. 
<laughs> I can't have a beautiful face, but Max Factor can fix it for me. A Revlon. I need a Revlon because I'm not good enough and I can't change. The reality is, is that the makeup is irrelevant. In fact, in Thailand, uh, it's only in certain places and in certain industries that women wear makeup. Hmm. That the, by and large, most women in the and in Thailand don't wear makeup, and in in some cases, they don't even own any makeup because they never put it on. Hmm. That's one of the things that I liked about Pam in the first place. I've never seen her wear makeup. Hmm. She's an ugly, frumpy, middle-aged <laughs> Asian, and she's okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> I hope she doesn't listen to us. <laughs> no, <she's not> here. <laughs> but it doesn't matter anyway that if she understood what I was saying, she would smile at me and I'd smile back at her. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, so uh, look at what happens in the West. Why just because a woman has a job does she have to wear makeup? The answer to that is, is because everything's been sexualized in the West. Sure. Can't just be humans, a male human and a female human, and it doesn't matter. They're not going to be spending that much time, uh, let us say, uh, behind closed doors under the sheets. No, I, I would say it's competition. Right. And there's the real reality that people that are better looking tend to tend to get better job opportunities or their superior that's the culture, that's than, the culture though not yeah. the reality of the situation the it's reality the of the situation is you would want very very smart ugly people to work for you <laughs> right <laughs> except you don't want them too smart because if they're smart enough they'll quit <laughs> right but it's funny because if you go to like some of the top companies like in particular industries especially you know you'll find like they often have a lot of really good looking people working for them and that's like a tactic that they have you know in order to attract clients in order to you know um, put on a good face for the company whatever that means you know, but it's a tactic, you know, it's not because they're actually the best and the brightest and would do the best job. But that is something that people look for in today's economy, unfortunately. Well, there was one thing that I did learn when I was a kid. Um, that has to do with the phrase, those who can do and those who can't teach. But there's a third one. Those, those who can do and those who can't buy makeup. <laughs> those words, who, if I can't do the job, at least I can look the part. Right. Right. Again, that's all cultural. Right. When you recognize how much of the influence we've had that's uh, that. Uh, especially Western culture has on people, they begin to wait, say, wait a minute, the culture that we live in is a prison. 
it's a kind of a prison. It's better to live, a, you know, to, to walk out of that prison if you can. Yeah. That's not being associated with. You've got to wear certain clothes. In fact, that's one thing that I can see is beginning to fall apart. Um, the distinction, here's an example. And I'm talking about clothing. The issue of clothing has fallen apart. And the clearest example that I see right now is the difference between the way that Vladimir uh, Zelensky versus Vladimir Putin dress. Hmm. It's the same, right? They both wear like no. a oh. no. Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, is always wearing a gray, a, a green army T-shirt. Okay, I haven't noticed that, but I haven't been following. Vladimir Putin is always in the most expensive, spiffy business suit he can wear. I, I've seen that, yeah. Okay. The same thing is the, your typical CEO wears a business suit. Elon Musk, he'll wear anything that he can get. Right. He does not wear a business suit. Okay. That whole idea is falling apart. The clothes may demand, and you can see that especially true in, uh, for us now, period movies. Uh, if you have a movie about what happened three or four hundred years ago, look at the costumes of the people that are wearing uh, in that movie, because the costume defines their um, status in society. Yes, it's very funny. There are these old pictures of New York in 1920, and they're really cool pictures. And there's even one that someone that made a video, actually. Um, and uh, everyone there is dressed so finely. You know, they all have suits and hats and ties and that kind of a thing. So you and, go around the corner and see the hobos that are sitting in <laughs> hobo clothes. Which they didn't take a picture of, of course. They just took a picture of the yeah, business right. district. I yeah. want to take pictures of those guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's funny because when you watch shows from that era that try to be really true to the period, it sometimes looks like the society was much more dignified. Uh, because they they had all the, the, these fancy handmade clothing, or we would consider it fancy, but they probably considered it fairly normal. But it was all certainly handmade, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, it seems like there is some dignity in that. I remember uh, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa in um, the text uh, Anapanasati for eager beginners. Well, it's actually serious beginner. <laughs> okay. We've discussed the proper title for that before. <laughs> um, but he writes about how you should dress in a dignified way. You know, um, he, he doesn't say like fancy, obviously, but he says dignified is, I think, is the term that was used in the translation. And there does seem to be some kind of dignity that people gain from dressing up a little bit. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that and what Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa may be meant by that. Well, he used a Thai word, and it was Satyakaro who chose to use the word dignified. So I'm not really sure what the Pali word would be, uh, but we could possibly play with words like appropriate. Uh, appropriate for the situation. An example of that is, is that Tam will not let me go to town without wearing some sandals and wearing a shirt. So that I, means that about once every month or two months, I have to put on a shirt, put on shoes. 
<laughs> but when I'm at home, there is nothing. In fact, most of the people uh, at Watso and Moke, when they're in their cootie, they are topless. Except for the women who have been socialized, and then they are not topless because they have sexual issues, sexual identity issues. Um, but if you don't see yourself as a sexual being, then what is it that needs to be hidden away? <laughs> so supposing, then, that Vikas Buddhadasa is talking about is not for you, it's for the other people. Sure. Tam makes me wear the clothing to the bank because the bank people would find it inappropriate for me to walk in without a shirt on. Sure. However, many of the businesses in Copangon, uh, because they do work with the, the Westerners, they put up with the Westerners because the Westerners are on vacation, okay? And so you don't have to wear a shirt when you're in a hotel on vacation because they've gotten kind of used to it. Here's one thing that's quite interesting, and that is you know about swimwear, Western swimwear. Men sometimes have tiny little things, and sometimes they have boxer short kinds of things, right? And the women have bikinis and bathing suits and all this kind of stuff. Thai women, or Thai men in general, everyone, when they go swimming, they don't change clothes. Whatever they were wearing, that's what gets wet. <laughs> that's quite funny. I've seen her. She's got a great big uh, inner plastic swimming pool that gets it about um, maybe two feet deep. Big, huge play pools that she's in. If she were in the West, she'd be wearing swimwear. Hmm. But Kitty gets into the pool here in Thailand with all the clothes on, just like all the Thai people. That's how they go swimming. They don't have to have special clothes to go swimming. So back to that point about wearing the clothes that are appropriate for the situation still is cultural. It's all cultural. Knowing that it's cultural, wisely, we deal with culture the way that we would expect culture to be. So, therefore, I am quite uh, willing to put on a shirt and put on shoes to go to the bank. Hmm. Because that would be what's expected. Okay, so in that regard, what Bhikkhu Buddha Das is talking about, if you go into a situation dressed, appropriately for the situation based upon the culture, then that gives you the feel good that you're doing the right thing as opposed to going in wrongdoing simply because you're not dressed appropriately. And these dress codes have been changed. In the old days, you could say that everyone uh, dressed the same because it was always men out on the street and women were at home making the clothes that the men were wearing. My mom was a seamstress also, all the other uh, duties that she did. When I was a little kid, I wore homemade clothes. Hmm. Most of the kids in the 50s did. Sears and Roebuck, one of, one of their biggest parts of their business was selling cloth and selling patterns. Hmm. 
I bet you uh, I bet you don't even know where a, uh, a golf store is in the United States that sells golf and patterns. But you would in yeah, yeah. Michael's is maybe the first, the only possibility, and it would be like some little corner far in the back, only made for artistry, not for actual. That club. was Sears and Roebuck's main yeah. business in the 1950s was selling uh, both cloth. Wow. And that business falling out of business altogether because people don't make their own clothes anymore. But meanwhile, back to the story. <clears throat> the reason everybody dressed the same is because it was the men out there. Look is what happened, for instance, with um, women beginning to wear pantsuits. That was a huge no-no. Even Hillary Clinton was, um, uh, let us say, criticized for wearing pantsuits. But at least women have been able to wear more colorful stuff. I mean, look at what they did with Obama because he wore a tan suit. <laughs> I, I have a question. Tan suit. You didn't get busted. It was all racial oriented and, and and whatnot. And so they criticized clothing. So clothing. There's an old expression. Clothing makes the man. When I was in the third grade, one of the stories that we read was that there was two guys that were crooks, and they decided that the way to handle things was one of them dresses up like a policeman and guards the store that the other one is going in to to rob. While he's standing there in the policeman's costume, somebody comes up and like a kid and says, "Oh, I need this help," and "Oh, I need that," and someone else says, "You look fine, handsome." Uh, officer, I'm really glad that you're here. That kind of stuff in the 1950s, they don't happen anymore. <laughs> and so when his friend, the crook, comes out of the uh, the store, this his his friend dressed in the police suit arrests him and takes him <laughs> to the close <laughs> by station. Uh, and then what he said, "Well, I'm a policeman now. Everybody thinks hilarious. I'm a policeman. <laughs> so clothes make the man." If you yeah. dress the part, so this is what Bikaguda Das is talking about. If you dress appropriately, if you dress according to what's expected, then you become the way that you're dressed hmm. in society's eye. That the clothing does make the man in our society. That's why people put on the clothing that they put on it because of the expectations of the society and the people that they'll be around. Hmm. I would prefer that the people that I'm around expect me to walk around nude because they do. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I have a question. This is a different topic. It's a more esoteric topic, but it's something that came up. So, um, so one of the things I really enjoy about the Zen stuff I've been reading lately is the emphasis on non-discrimination. Right. You know, and seeing reality as this undivided, beautiful whole uh, that even incorporates dualism as a part of non-dualism. Right. Mm -hmm. And and that that is the actual nature of reality. And it's the discriminating mind that creates problems. Right. Um, however, in um, in the practice um, in the suttas, you know, discrimination is actually pretty important in terms of wholesome versus unwholesome, right? And and so my question is, is the idea that one should discriminate 
per wholesome and wholesome unwholesome but still keep an eye out that the underlying reality it's all just part of one big beautiful show you know um how should one think about discrimination versus the non-dual love of everything even though the approach is different the teaching is the same hmm. the same teaching it's just approached differently hmm. this is what we're looking at and that is we have to see that the um one way of the discrimination would be like she loves me she hates me she loves me she hates me um or as you were thinking in the same regard of it's wholesome it's unwholesome it's wholesome it's unwholesome right and what both of the teachings both the theravada and the zen is trying to do is to point out that the uh she loves me she hates me is a cycle to be seen that it is in factually it's non-dual the she loves me she hates me is a duality but the fact is that they're back and forth mm. they're in a cycle and the cycle itself is a unity mm. and it contains both right when, so when we see the cycles then we can see not only the cycling itself but what is it in there in the cycle Okay, so imagine that uh, the, the point uh, of a compass, and so the needle is pointing always north, but the, but the compass itself can be spun around in any direction, and the needle keeps pointing north, but it looks like it's on a W, but then it looks like it's on an S, because the base is spinning around. Hmm. Okay, so this is the way that we begin to understand is, is that all of this stuff is cycles, and we can stand outside the cycle, and we can begin to see then that the needle is always pointing in the same direction. It's the compass that's spinning around. <laughs> sure. And so the up and down is, uh, or the, the cycles, like uh, you were talking about the cycle of that when Sandra left, that oh you couldn't do without her then you got along without her and now you're worried about when she comes back i'll have to put up with her <laughs> notice that that's just a cycle it's all the same cycle it's your relationship with her coming and going and coming and going and it's the same thing see that cycle that the mind is in even though that cycle takes a week or two but see those cycles Sure. And recognize that you are not any one of the things on the cycle, that you're the whole cycle. And then not only that, but you're not that cycle. You're the one who sees the cycle. <laughs> but then you're not even that. You're just, uh, uh, you are not the observer. It's just merely observation. Just like there is walking, but no walker. There is only observation. There's no observer. <laughs> but we have to be able to come out of those cycles in order to be able to see the cycles and become the observer until we recognize that we're not even the observer. It's just observation of these cycles. Sure. Cycles in the mind. So that's, a, uh, that's actually now pointing back to the issue of anatta versus um, uh, 
are, are no soul versus no self. Because no soul, yes, there is no soul because the definition of a soul is, is that it is perfect, it is everlasting, it is unchanging, and that you need a Jesus because the soul itself is not good enough. Who do you think you're good? Only God is good. This is the kind of stuff that Paul has put into the Bible. Uh, and John also, you have to accept Jesus as your Savior. Jesus didn't say any of that stuff. Right. You don't need Jesus. To, Jesus <laughs> taught people how to change. And then Paul comes along and says, oh, well, now that Jesus has taught you how to change, that means you need Jesus in order to change. And so that's the real issue of the teachings that we uh, are confused about because of bad translations of the, of the word, that anatta actually means no soul, the atmos, that which is uh, changing, uh, or excuse me, not changing. Uh, and yet the atmosphere is constantly changing also. The one thing that we know about it, though, is changing. I mean, the weather can be cold, the weather can be hot, the wind can blow, the wind can be still, the wind is raining, the wind is uh, thunder and lightning. But there's always just the wind or just the air. It's always there. But the guys who think that way haven't been to the moon because if they go to the moon, the air is not always there. <laughs> So, so on this, so there's no self, no, there's no um, soul, even in the in the soul of the air. There's no soul to it. There's no soul anywhere. Everything changes. Nothing is permanent. Since everything is changing, we can put a little bit of right effort through wisdom and effect the changes that we want to have because the changes are going to be there anyway that it's a um a, a point of ignorance that things remain the same they don't they keep changing they say history repeats itself and then other people say no it doesn't it doesn't uh, uh it, it rhymes but no history does repeat itself over and over and over but it's not exactly the same on each cycle. Every cycle is different, but it's still the same cycle. Hmm. Good, bad, good, bad, up, down, up, down. She loves me. She hates me. I need her. Now I don't want her to come home. You see that cycle in there. Everything is constantly in a cycle, and that is what we can recognize that can be changed. We can come out of those cycles. Everything is stuck in a, in a cycle. This is the samsara. And so it takes a bit of reflection and looking to say that, oh, this cycle that I'm on now took two weeks for one revolution. Mm. That kind of wisdom dogs don't have. Dogs don't see things in two-week cycles. They have more wisdom. <laughs> but they could. If they would look and recognize and put and connect the dots, that's what the human mind is capable of doing, is to begin to see these cycles. Because then we can step out of the cycle, and I am not that cycle. Sure. So 
in that regard, the self is irrelevant because the self itself is just part of the cycle. Right. Some feel like a nut, sometimes we don't. That's the cycle that we're in. If you can see that cycle, then you have a choice about it. Right. So, okay, so two directions we can go. One is on the topic of no soul. Um, um, I recently heard an interview with some students of Pa Alk Sayadaw, and I had a question for you about that. And the other is this poem. Which, which Sayadaw? Pa Alk in Burma. Ah. Okay. Yes. So, okay, we'll do that one first. Then we'll go to Dogen. That was my other direction. But anyway, so Pa Alk. Um, he has this system of meditation um, where he takes you through the jhanas and you really perfect your samadhi and then you start doing the vipassana once you go through his very rigorous shamatha practice, right? Um, mm -hmm. Now, part now, of that... that is against that, by the way. Go ahead. Okay. Okay, cool. This is a good, good way to start. So part of that involves uh, looking into past lives. And I heard these senior students of Pa Alk were on Guru Viking, and when um, they were talking about how he doesn't focus on it that much, but it's still part of his system. And so once you perfect the samadhi to a certain point, you can go into the past lives, and he talks to you about it for maybe five minutes, and then he moves on. But it's still part of his right. system. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that and people using samadhi and shamatha uh, for those purposes, and are they just uh, d d being have being delusional when they see this, or do you think there's something there? What What are your thoughts on this uh, phenomenon? Okay. The way that I would always begin this is there's a sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya that says um, it's actually an important point about this samatha versus Vipassana hmm. it's in the Anguttara Nikaya it's not in the older literature it's not old established the Buddha rarely used the word in fact are not even these one of the words are in the suttas much the one place that I see the word Vipassana mostly is when a western translator will put it as a topic of uh, a part of the sutta but it's not actually uh, using the word Vipassana, it's just talking about it, okay? So the first point is, is that Vipassana Samatha is an old, uh, uh, non-existent thing that newly arrived maybe a hundred years or so after the Buddha. Hmm. And in the Sutta, is talking about it in the sense that if you have uh, Samatha, then you should develop Vipassana, which is where Pa'ak is coming from. Right. And this, it also says, if you already have Vipassana, then you should practice Samatha. Hmm. Then it says, but if you have neither one, then you should be practicing and developing both of them together. Mm. is actually the Buddha taught, which is the direct method or the shortcut. In other words, if you've got a triangle and you're at A and you need to be at B, or excuse me, C, 
then how do you get from A to C? Do you go directly or do you go B first? Okay. Or if the triangle is upside down, do you go uh, Samatha and then Vipassana, or do you go Vipassana and then Samatha? And the answer to that is you don't go to one or the other first. You go directly from A to C. You do both Vipassana and Samatha together. That's the first thing to understand. So when Pa'ak is saying to develop Samatha first and then Vipassana, he actually doesn't know the sutta that I'm talking about. Hmm. Number two, that method that you're talking about there is also the method that the Buddha practiced himself. Samatha first and then Vipassana because he didn't know anything else. But in hmm. fact, the Buddha, in a way, would say that after he, after he perfected his Samatha, he didn't know where to go next. And so he developed Vipassana, but he certainly wouldn't treat it or teach it that way. Hmm. The next question that we have is, what is the definition of the words Samatha? Because do you have to do all the jhanas, or does it merely mean just the first jhana? That the first jhana is Samatha. Okay, so that's, an, that's enough. The second point about the past life experiences is that, yes, the Buddha has done that. A lot of people did that. I did that, too, to be honest with you, when I was in India before I got into Buddhism. And I've had quite a number of past life experiences. One of them was when I was a, a pallbearer of a, another monk that had died. And on the way of the journey of taking this, uh, this pall, uh, I slipped and fell off and went to my death falling down a hill. I've also fallen down elevators. I've fallen, uh, not elevators, but, but shafts. I've fallen down, uh, it was a great big burning building and the stairs collapsed and the fire and all kinds of things. Um, met, met people who I've known in past lives, etc. like that. So the whole point is, is that the Buddha recognizes that this is a very early stage of one's practice, but mm -hmm. that it's not really jhana practice because the jhanas, in order to have past life experiences, we have to have that experience as a thought process. It's a concept. Mm -hmm. And the real first jhana is coming out of concept into having just language that's associated with the right here, right now. You apply the mind to the wholesome, you apply the mind to this moment, and you sustain the mind in this moment. And so past life experiences is something that meditators have before they ever get any samatha or vipassana. Hmm. And when we actually begin to get some real samatha and some real vipassana, then those past lives don't mean anything because really what's going on is right here, right now. Hmm. Now, the point about the, uh, the belief of the practice has to do with the same reason that Christianity teaches about hell. That in fact, in the Old Old Testament in Jewish literature, they call it the Sheol or the grave. Right. Jesus also was not really big on teaching about heaven and hell. He talked about heaven in the sense of heaven and earth, heaven and hell will pass away. Everything is temporary. He also says the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is within you. 
So Jesus had some pretty noble things to say. He did not talk about homosexuality, and he didn't talk about hell, and yet hell winds up being a major, major tenet of Christianity. That's how you control other people's behaviors, by threatening them that no matter what you do, you're going to get caught and punished for it. Even if you die, you can't even hide by dying. We're going to come get you. You got a soul, you know, that's going to linger on and we're going to get you. Okay, so that's the same thing that is in Hinduism of the issue of if you do good action, you will guaranteed to get good results no matter how long it takes. And if you act badly, it doesn't matter how long it takes, you will get punished for your bad behavior. This is the teaching of Hinduism. And then they say, well, what happens to the village uh, head guy who goes around taking everything that he wants in this village? He bullies people around and everybody in the village hates him. And then he dies a rich man. And he didn't have to pay for any of the bad behavior that he did in this village. Ah, we got to get a priest who can pray for him so that after he's dead, he'll get punished. Because we couldn't punish him now. We couldn't get to him. We weren't strong enough. He was too big, too powerful, too much of a president. He lied his way out of everything. And he didn't get caught in it. And we want him punished. Just like the Democrats really want to get Donald Trump. They yeah. want him now. <laughs> okay, well, that's the whole point of the teaching of rebirth and reincarnation and the teaching of heaven and hell. It's to control other people's behavior, especially children who are too stupid, who don't have the wisdom to see what's right and what's wrong, and so we threaten them. Mm -hmm. This is what rebirth is all about. This is actually what reincarnation is all about. The teaching of rebirth is slightly different than that, because after all, rebirth is Buddhist. Most people who call themselves and think of themselves as Buddhists don't even know the distinction between what is reincarnation and what is rebirth? Hmm. Do you know the difference? Yes, yeah, we've talked about it. Right, okay. So in Sutta number 38, the Buddha talks about um, that it is whatever it is that's reborn, it is not consciousness. That consciousness is dependently arisen. Hmm. That you do not have eye consciousness until you open your eyes. You do not have ear consciousness until there is a sound to be heard. Okay, so um, uh, how can that same consciousness be off into the future when it exists now only because of conditions? That's why there's a distinction between rebirth and reincarnation is, is that re rebirth means that things just happen over and over and over again but it didn't happen to me because I am not the same consciousness that happened before. Right. So this yeah. is where we come to the, uh, the comings and goings of beings, which is the second watch of the night. The comings and goings of beings means that the guy who did it is not the guy who's going to get punished for it. The guy who did it did it with great greed and gusto and doing it. And then his punishment, he's not the same person now. He's remorseful. He's uh, uh, heavy. And so the person who uh, uh, does the good or bad deed is not the person who, does, uh, who gets punished or rewarded for it. 
as a different person at a different time. That's the real understanding of the Buddha. And uh, in that regard, we can say, well, so what if I'm reborn? Because when I am reborn, it won't be me. I won't even now, when I'm there in that new life, know about this life at all. That it's just a ridiculous kind of thing. And so actually the teaching of rebirth is a better teaching than uh, reincarnation because reincarnation, there's no way out. With rebirth, you could just say, well, forget about it. It's not my problem. That's off into the future sometime. Sure. And I don't have to worry about the deep, dark past and how bad a, uh, a I was back then. All I have to do with is deal with the results that happen right now. If I can deal with right now, if I can deal with right now from the position of the past, or if I can deal right now with the position of the future, then beliefs in rebirth and reincarnation don't mean anything. And Pa'ak is probably talking to the people in the sense of getting them past looking for past lives. I know, in fact, in the Mahasi method, a lot of people think that they have to practice really strongly in order to get past life experiences. Well, why do people want to have past life experiences? Because that guarantees or proves to them that past lives exist. And they really want to know that. Sure. The answer is, is that whether it exists or not is irrelevant to how I'm going to handle this particular moment. It, it's the same instinct as what it's the same it's the same instinct as what causes you to drive past the policeman and around the corner so he doesn't catch you you know there's there's this adventurism that people have you know and and it's partly why i i'm here in south america you know there's right. the want to know. yes mm -hmm. adventure yes to know that's in fact the way uh, of looking at it in the sense of adrenaline Yes. which is dopamine or serotonin, the way that we were talking about it before, that we want to have this competition rather than recognizing that we're going to win anyway. Why should I go through the adrenaline phase and just, why don't we just go right with the serotonin? Right. Just be friends. Okay. So the whole point about rebirth, reincarnation, heavens and hells is part of that duality of a cycle. And we can, in fact, stand out of that cycle and look at heaven and hell going around in circles. Right. We can look at good and bad going around in circles. I, I'm curious, have you ever read uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj? Or Nisargadatta? Oh, I know what Maharaj means, but go ahead. Uh, yeah, he's this uh, Indian uh, mystic. Um, he was, in, he, he uh, basically, he, really interesting guy. He uh, owned a cigar shop and he had a guru and the guru told him to meditate on I am for three years as a as mantra and he did that. Then he became enlightened. Then he didn't change anything about his life at all. He's, he continued with his little shop and he lived above the shop and he would just give talks. You know, he's married and had kids and people from all over the world would go to stay with him and listen to him talk. And this one disciple of his, uh, who's actually Jewish, funnily enough, uh, decided to live with him and trans record and transcribe all the conversations 
and he put out a book um, which is a list of these trans is a transcript of all the conversations called I am that but Maharaj didn't care that there okay. was a book he had no care for it he never traveled to give teachings he just stayed there and one thing he kept talking about is just this uh, um, the way that all of consciousness is united there is no observer there is no thing being observed and it's all just you know like that you know and well, i find that I when i reflect the language issue rather than there is uh there is no observation a better way of saying it is there is no observer yes or observed even there's no observer and there's well, no that is being observed it's all one that which is observed but it's not a me it's not who i am so i am not the observed and i am not the observer but observation and that which is being observed does exist but it doesn't matter <laughs> because there's no me in there anyway <laughs> And in fact, it's kind of a backwards point, uh, and probably that's why it took him years to figure it out when he has the duty of figuring out who am I, because ultimately we keep coming back to, well, I'm not this, and I'm not that, and I'm yes, not this. Yes, yes, the self-inquiry. Right, when we start doing that inventory and figuring out, I am not angry. Anger may be there, but it's not me. Right. Well, I that no, I it's not me that's that. It's it's Charles have <laughs> yeah. a lot of all. That but they're that's not me. And so that's the whole point when uh in fact the Buddha talks about it in the sense of who am I? Who was I in the past? Well I will be in the future. What is it about me now that will be in the future? All of those kind of questions, the Buddha says, are not worthy of attention. What is worthy of attention is, this is the dukkha, that cycle. The cause of the dukkha is because I don't see the cycles of greed and ill will, and greed and ill will, and greed and ill will. I like it, I don't like it. That's the cycle of feelings. And when we can see the cycle of feelings and recognize I am not that cycle of the feelings, then the dukkha can stop. I can see this is dukkha. I can see the cycles that create the dukkha. I can come out of those cycles and stop. Right. And that's the noble truth. And the way that we get into the third noble truth is through practicing correctly of remember to look at what you're doing. Remember to see this stuff. Recognize you've got a choice, make the choice, make a change, and then delight in that change. And that's the path. So that's yeah. the method. I, I notice whenever I think about myself not existing and I am just, you know, you know, cresting on the wave of a vast ocean, um, I find it extremely relaxing and just a great thing to, to dwell on. Yeah. You know. If there's a me, then that me is responsible for all kinds of things. If there's no right. me, then I've got no responsibilities. I could just hang out and have fun. Yeah. I don't have any duties, any responsibilities at all. Just to be mindful of watching what's going on, recognizing that society 
has their own expectations, and I can get into a lot of trouble if I go to the bank without a shirt on. Right. Actually, I'll get in trouble with Tam. Everybody else will just stare. And she'll watch them stare. And then she'll come home and she'll glare. <laughs> but the whole point is, is that we have to be aware of what society expects so that we can get along with society when we have to deal with it. Right. But other than that, I'm not responsible. I don't have to wear a shirt because I'm supposed to. Right. Well, it's funny because it seems to me when you release that, you know, discriminating, discriminating mind, right, and you just coast on the ocean of consciousness, um, that the fact that it's so nice to do says to me that that means life is intrinsically good, right? You know, that being is intrinsically good. Um, it is. Absolutely. And I see a lot of Buddhists who get confused like that. Uh we can use it in uh, slam dunk hardcore language, and then they'll get it. And that slam dunk hardcore language is life itself is dukkha. Because if life itself is dukkha, then there's no way out. Right. Other than to die. And according to the rebirth and reincarnationists, it ain't over then either. You're still responsible. You're going to have to get yourself dug back up, pop back into a cunt, and back at it again. And you don't have any choice about it. Okay, That's yeah. the whole idea of um, dukkha is life itself. But the Buddha talks about it. No, dukkha is not life itself. It's got a cause. The cause of these cycles that we get stuck in. And in fact, I, from some students, I don't know if I've done this with you before, but the way to look at it is to give the student a, a choice that you can either live right now for the next 10 minutes or you can die now. Got a gun to your head. Are you going to go ahead and pull the trigger now or are you going to at least wait till the count of 10 and have another deep breath? <laughs> well, since, I, since I've actually been in a situation like that, I will definitely take the 10 minutes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That means that I we do that to life. That is, in fact, the self-preservation instinct. And that right. self-preservation instinct that we cling to life so strongly that we have a whole lot of false um, fears to come up. And we're not living in reality because the uh, life itself is, is so important. But when we recognize that, hey, I can go for 50 years without robbing a bank. I can go my whole life without driving a car. I can have, I can go my whole life without dating. I can go for 30 days without eating, even more. I can go several days without drinking any water. How long can you go without breathing? Not very long. Not very long. One or two or three minutes at most, and then... If you do hold your breath for three to five minutes, you really, really want with all your body, all your being to take that next breath. Yep. It's built in. And when we do take that next breath after that long pause, it is so delicious. It is life-giving. And that's when we begin to recognize for sure that life itself is not too common. 
that life, in fact, is the only possibility that we can have a duality of Duke and not Duke. If you were never born, this would never have been an issue. But now that you are born, we cling to that uh, life. Let's cling to it wisely rather than cling to it ignorantly. Right. Recognize that that's actually the important thing. There's only one important thing in all of your whole life. That's this next breath. That's all that matters. You take your next next breath, (laughs) and then nothing else could possibly matter. Right. You know, one thing I've noticed since uh, the incident in the park two weeks ago is is I've been studying the Dhamma with way more intensity uh, than I did before. You know, I've been reading. It's important. I said, wakey, wakey. Yeah. This can qualify as a near-death experience. You don't have to be in a coma to have a near-death experience. And people who have do have, when we get close to death, we begin to recognize what's important. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. And it's like. I would recommend that every child gets murdered when they were 15. (laughs) Almost. Well, so in Christianity, if you remember my joke from a while back, you know, the right thing to do is kill all the kids if you're a Christian, if you're a Catholic, right? Because kids all go to heaven. So just that's kill all the exactly kids. That's exactly right, yes. <laughs> if they all go to heaven, then better just, <laughs> you know. But um, but yeah, no, it's, it's interesting, you know, because it does seem to me like, you know, I feel like like in that that little poem I read you yesterday from the Dogen, you know, about in between my official duties, I, I practice Zazen, you know, um, and then it also said at the end of the poem, and I didn't dwell on this part, but he said, although I'm a magistrate, I am known as a Buddhist elder. <laughs> so even though he had this high ranking position in the government, uh, because he would do a Zazen, in between his duties, he ended up being known more for his dhamma than he was for his duties. Well, you know, which was perhaps I could make a statement, something like that. Yeah, if I'm a recipient of social security. Actually, I'm just a dhamma dude. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah. Any, anyway, going back to Pakao, just to finish off with that. Yeah, is um. The traditional method of doing all of the jhanas first before you do the vipassana is a very, very slow, difficult process. Hmm. Because you're developing the skills that you need. It's through um, vipassana that you develop the skills that you need in order to figure out how to get into the first jhana in the first place. So most people who are doing samatha, 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 samatha will do so for years without ever getting in the first jhana. And that's where all this magical thinking comes from. Right. You get into the first jhana, now your thoughts are wholesome and you're only thinking about the here now. But we need some wisdom or some uh, um, vipassana, some insight, some understandings in order to get into the first genre. So these things really are best done together. Sure. 
imagine that if the Buddha had started off that way, he could have cut through that first six years. You know, it took him six years of, of Samatha before he figured out that ain't it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's funny because the two students that were on the podcast, they were the only two Westerners, um, at least at that time when they completed the system, to complete Pa Alk's Shamatha system. And that was one of the reason he was, reasons he was interviewing them. You know, but there's a reason there were only two, because it's a really hard system, you know, mm-hmm. and then Pa Auk was very interested in them because they were the only Westerners that were able to do it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, but no, I know what you teach is uh, kind of you're actually a little more insight focused than you are Shamatha, but it's both in there. They're both in there. And I think the students kind of have a choose your own adventure, right? Where if they want to sit more, they can do more of the shopping. Maybe I should make sure that I teach that uh, that they are to be done together. But that's yeah. the shortcut. Okay. That if you're if you're this if you are sitting in the center of the clock and your destination is to get to let us say four o'clock then you can go directly from the center to four o'clock. Why should you have to go to six o'clock first and then around back up to the four? Why not go directly there? That takes both of them. Right. You can't do jhana without insight. The insight comes from knowing the difference between a wholesome and an unwholesome thought. You can't practice samatha without vipassana. It's just technically impossible to do. That's why it takes so long, is because um, it kind of gets mixed in. Hmm. Another example of that would be joy, which is the same thing as, uh, as what we're talking about that the dry insight meditators is very, very, very long, but many times. They, by accident, add the joy to it. They're not told that from their teacher. The Mahasi method, the joy uh, or the gladdening the mind is buried deep into the literature and hard to locate. And so everybody reads the first parts of the book and they're doing all the really, really hard work. In fact, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa has exactly the same issue because he teaches Anapanasati in the organized method that is taught in the sutta. They're on page like 218 of this book when he's talking about step 10 of Anapanasati of gladdening the mind. He actually says, this is the first thing that should be done. Well, if it's the first thing that should be done, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa, why do you put it on page 218 of your book? Why don't you put it on page one of the book? It's the first thing that needs to be done. <laughs> <laughs> and so is the problem is the book readers. Yeah. It's reading the book in the order that is uh, that is presented on, on paper, not recognizing that the really easy, fun stuff to do is later in the book. Right. So don't judge a book by its cover or the order within which it's written. Go get the gems out of it. That's the way to do it, but we need a guide to do that. So even though I could read Vicky Budadasa's book, that didn't give me what I needed. What I needed was 
direct communication with him so that he can point out, oh, we'll go to page 217 or 218 and read there and stop with this page five. <laughs> right. Right. Okay, so that, and that's also with the Mahanti method. So many students never get, uh, gladdening the mind, never get any joy out of any of the teachings from Mahanti, even though originally it was part of the Mahanti method. But some students then figure it out on their own. That's what I would imagine happened with uh, uh, Daniel Ingram. Because after he got into the dark night of the soul, he figured out, wait a minute, there's got to be something better than this. Yeah. <laughs> Let's yeah. come out of this stuff. And you see, when you ever see him on, on uh, uh, the videos, he's always chipper. He's always very happy. Right. Can handle criticism very much better than I can. I don't. I, he's really excellent at it. He set himself up as a target, and so he's had a lot of criticism yeah. to deal with. <laughs> so he can deal with it beautifully. I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, but it was part of the teaching in the first place. Right. So that's another thing is, is that the students will eventually figure out for themselves their own missing pieces in there. It just takes so long. It's better if they're given the uh, tools they need right from the very beginning. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I, you know, I think um, it's really great how some of your students are quite young, you know, like uh, Parker and Keyshawn, because they, they've got a great head start on the Dhamma, you know, mm -hmm. uh, getting a uh, meeting with the teacher at quite a young age. I think that's fantastic. You know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I get great joy out of watching students grow in the Dhamma. I've really enjoyed watching you change too. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it'd be fun sometime to do a video about the, the progression, you know, um, thus far. Well, sometimes you feel like a nut and sometimes you don't. There's your progression. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 and then you begin to see that, oh, sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. It's a cycle. So now let's come out of the cycle, and that's a new change. Great. Absolutely. Oh, sh shall we do the Dogen poem? I put it in the song of U.S. Say what? Shall we do the Dogen poem? I put it in the song of U.S. I posted it there. Okay. All right, I'll I'll bring this in and I, well, and I let's let's go ahead and finish now. I mean, we've been going at it for quite a while. I <laughs> I really have been energized. So this has been a really beautiful talk. I really have enjoyed it. Yeah, so yeah. We haven't done the sutra yet, but that's okay. We'll do the sutras later. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. All right, so let's finish off now, and we'll talk later. This has been great. It's always an ongoing. Dhamma conversation anyway. This Ab is the best kind of Dhamma. Absolutely. Con gusto. Uh, muchas gracias. Y con gusto. All, All right. right. Thanks so much. Watch those cycles. Watch those cycles. Yes, sir. Will do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care, Don Rana. Thanks Bye -bye. so much.